Uh, contrary to what that slide may have suggested, I did not write that song. Um, I did, however, write this sermon. You can open your Bible to Galatians chapter 4. It's where we're going to eventually land today. One of my favorite things about the Christmas season, and might be one of your favorite things about it too, is watching Christmas movies. Anybody else love Christmas movies? I, I absolutely love them. I love the old ones. I love some of the new ones. Um, but, but my favorite Christmas movie, and, and growing up, I can remember seeing this for the first time, and one of my favorite Christmas movies, Judge Me If You Must, is Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. And one of my favorite characters in any Christmas movie is Cousin Eddie. It's Cousin Eddie. And I think it's one of my favorite Christmas movies and one of my favorite Christmas characters because it's this sort of climactic scene, right, where Clark W. Griswold finally gets his lights to work correctly, which I still haven't done yet in my house. They're off and on, but he gets his lights to work correctly and they sort of pan and go from one family member to the next, to the next, to the next, and then surprise, Cousin Eddie's there and he's there with his RV and he's there to stay, right? I think... All of us probably have some sort of Cousin Eddie in our life. Um, maybe our family has a Cousin Eddie in it, and if your family doesn't have a Cousin Eddie, you might be the Cousin Eddie in your family. I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to throw it out there. You might be. It's really interesting, though, as I've had the chance to you know, interact with people, pastor people, counsel people. Um, there's this sort of resounding bass note during the holiday season that it's a double-edged sword. You know, and, and for some people, they look forward to the holidays, they look forward to Christmas, they look forward to family, and for other people, you just sense the anxiety level rising because there's going to be people that you're around that maybe there's some fracture in the relationship. And I, I think if we were to sort of drill down and say, okay, for those of us who the holidays are difficult for, they're probably difficult because of family. Now, there's maybe some other reasons, but, but I think the, the main reason is because of family. It's maybe because of a fracture in the family. It's maybe because someone's missing that there's an empty seat around the table this year. Or maybe it's simply because family's coming. And there's this distinctly sort of human instinct to want family, isn't there? I mean, that, that's something we, we all share. We all want it on some level, and for some, it's more elusive than others. Um, Norman Rockwell was a, a famous painter, and back in 1948, he made, painted this painting that um, then appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post in 1948. It's called Christmas Homecoming. If you know anything about Rockwell's paintings, they're, they're picturesque, they're idyllic, and Rockwell got a lot of pushback because people told him that that's not the way the world actually works. <laughs> that's not reality. In an interview he gave, here's what he said. He said, maybe I grew up and found out the world wasn't the perfect place I'd thought it to be. I unconsciously decided that if it wasn't an ideal world, it should be. And so I painted only the ideal world aspects of it. It's really interesting. So is that our approach? I mean, that's one way to go about it, certainly, and the scriptures will say to us, um, whatever's pure, whatever's beautiful, whatever's lovely, whatever's noble, like, think about those things, Philippians chapter 4. That's, that's not a bad approach. 
But being human demands that we don't just think about the good parts, but we also think about the messy parts, right? We think about the parts that are the way that we hope they were, that are idyllic. We think about the Rockwellian picture in our mind, and some of life looks like that. But some of life doesn't. And so what's really interesting is our deepest pain often points to our strongest desires. Have you ever thought about that? The things we long for most and don't get, our deepest pains, often point towards our strongest desires. Those things that God has woven into us in our DNA, those things that make us human. So for many people, family is the best of times, and to quote Dickens, the worst of times. It's both. It's both. And in order to identify sort of this resonance, this prevailing base note that we share as human beings, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. So keep your thumb in Galatians chapter 4, but flip over with me to Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to fly over this, but we need to do a little bit of theology if we're going to lead up to Christmas. Those two things are very connected. So God creates Adam and Eve, calls them out of the rest of humanity. Now, that name Adam means human. The name Eve means life. Human and life are in a garden. Now, are these real people? I think so, but they're more than just real people. They're archetypes for human and life. That's really important for us to understand. They're created, they're placed in the garden, and they're given a job. Their job, according to Genesis chapter 2, their job, it says, And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Their job is to cultivate. Their job is to expand the garden, to take it beyond just the garden. These two people called out of the rest of humanity are called now to bring God's message of goodness, of love, of justice into his world. And they're given one command. You can just read one more verse. The Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, you may surely eat of the tree, of of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely, what? You shall die. If you eat of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And in contrast, you know the story, in contrast to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they have the tree of life, right? And these are two pillars sort of in the garden. And instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam and Eve um, aren't commanded to not know good and evil, what they're commanded to and what the tree's a temptation for is to define good and evil. For them to say, hey, you know what, God? I know better than you. God, I've got some ideas too about the way that this world should work. Does this sound familiar? We, we really don't move beyond the garden. I mean, that's why every sermon we get, we could start in Genesis chapter one, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, instead of defining good and evil yourself, come to me, God says, let me mentor you, become a disciple, live in my way with my heart, eat from my life. That's the invitation and that's the command. Now, if you're new to the story, this may shock you, but Adam and Eve, what do they choose? Yeah, they choose the knowledge of good and evil, don't they? They choose knowledge over life. 
They choose getting to decide right and wrong or over having it handed to them in the way of God. And immediately, four things happen. One, their relationship with God is fractured. Two, their relationship with their self is fractured. Three, their relationship with creation, fractured. And four, their relationship with each other, fractured. And it's not just their marriage that starts to have these um, sort of these fissures in. It's their family. Um, You may remember Genesis chapter 4. They have two kids, Adam and Eve do, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother, Abel. It's these echoes, this reverberation from what happened in the garden, from their disconnect from the tree of life, and it starts to just um, sort of get its tentacles in every relationship that they have. Every relationship they have is unideal, it is broken a little bit. I mean, that's an interesting Thanksgiving, isn't it? When your brother kills your other brother, when gather around the table with Adam and Eve on Thanksgiving and Abel's missing, Right? think your family has it hard. That's an interest. So we have this longing. And the family in the garden starts to unravel as they go east of Eden. We long for connection. We long for family. We long to gather around the long table with good food and good drinks and good conversation. We want every chair to be filled with the person we think should be there, and we want the relationship to look like what we think the relationship would look like. But that can be pretty elusive, can't it? Yeah. I mean, death and divorce and disagreement all have a say in our holidays, don't they? We may not know is that in many ways, Christmas speaks into this problem speaks into this with a a solution, with a a hope. If you have your Bible, now we're back in Galatians chapter 4. That's the groundwork for where we're going today, okay? You tracking? We have this longing, and it's often unmet. Thank you, Cousin Eddie. We don't live in Norman Rockwell's world, but we want it. And here's what Paul says in his letter to the church at Galatia. This will sound familiar if you were here last week. It's the same passage, and we're going to drill a little bit deeper and, and, and go a little bit further on in the passage today. And here's what Paul writes in this Christmas text. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, and remember last week we said that there's a lot of time that wasn't full, that leading up to that fullness of time, there was time that was a little bit empty and time where there was some longing and some waiting, and, and we often live in that not fullness of time, don't we? Okay, I do. Maybe you don't. You can talk back to me. It's okay. (laughs) When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And here's why he was sent. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, say it with me, adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Adoption as sons and daughters. And this word adoption, just like it means today, it meant for a first century reader, adoption meant that someone was called into a family and given every single right as a biological, natural-born child. There was no difference. It was a legal action that was taken to say it's just as though this person were born into this family. But I think this begs the question, why do we need adoption? I mean... Why aren't we 
just naturally children. I mean, you've probably heard it said. I, I've heard it said. We're, we're all God's children. Sort of. Sort of. We, we all live in God's world. We all breathe God's air. But according to the scriptures, why, why, why do we need adoption? Um, well, it all goes back to that tree. It all goes back to this fracture that happened between us and God, the relationship that we were designed to have, that we long for with God and with others, that, that it's, it's broken. And so what Paul says is that Christmas, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, clothed, God clothed in human skin, so that, the reason, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Jesus said it like this, quoting from his friend John. John writes this. He says, he, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become. So, so it's something that they're not yet, to become children of God. See, Christmas is certainly about a baby being born, but it's about way more than that. See, see here's what we celebrate. We, we celebrate that God became a child so that we might become children of God. That's why we gather. That, that's why we sing these songs. That's why we rehearse these Christmas carols. Uh, because here, here, catch this, please. Lean in a little bit if you can. What Paul is saying is that what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, Jesus begins to regain in the manger. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden, in all of its fullness, Jesus begins to regain in the manger. So um, here, here's why I've been thinking about it this year. Christmas is really regifting. You've ever have you ever given a gift that you don't need to raise your hand? Or we're not. I'm just going to assume that you have, because I have given a gift away that somebody gave you, right? This is this is God regifting. He's already given it to Adam and Eve, and now he's giving it to the rest of humanity. He's regifting Christmas. A few years ago, I stumbled across this painting that just caught my heart in a way that very few pieces of art ever have. It's by a nun. Her name is Sister Grace Remington. And it's a picture of Eve and Mary. Now, I'd encourage you, you can Google this and look at it in a little bit more detail, but it's, it's Mary consoling Eve. It's her grabbing Eve's hand and putting it on her belly, having her listen to the heartbeat of Messiah. Notice Eve's holding the fruit. Notice Eve's just covered in hair. Notice that Eve has the serpent crawling up her leg. But what is Mary doing? Stepping on its head. It's Genesis chapter 3, 15. It's this beautiful picture that what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, Jesus will begin to regain at the manger that we get the chance now to become children of God. What, what Adam and Eve were originally designed for, Jesus invites us back into. 
Communion with God. That, that's, that's what they were designed for. Walking with God, talking with God, interacting with God, enjoying God's presence. Now, sin leads them to hide, but before that, they're designed to walk and to be naked and unashamed. They're designed to, to live in his way. That's what it meant to eat of his tree, to, to do life with his design, with his heart in his way. It's why when Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what he says. It's fascinating. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, so when you do this, when you love your enemies and when you pray for those who persecute you, when you swim upstream and, and in many ways live counter to the way that you sometimes feel, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. So he talks about God. He goes, like, well, because he, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He's like, have you ever noticed, like, that your neighbor who's a total jerk gets as much rain and as much sun as your house does? Doesn't, that's the character of God and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He says, when you love and when you pray for people who wrong you, who hurt you, you actually start to become children of God. That's what that means. That, that phrase, children of God, means we live in his way with his heart. That's what it means. It means we imitate him. As a parent, one of the most humbling, challenging sometimes disappointing things is that my kids naturally imitate me. We were watching a Bronco game a few weeks ago. I won't name the game or the player, but Ethan says to me, man, so-and-so, Case Keenum, is just playing like garbage. And I'm like, garbage? He's playing like garbage. Where'd you hear? Oh, that's what I say. And I'm like, he might not be having his best game. You know, like, need a filter. Yeah. Here's the way Michael Heiser says it. He says, the believer's destiny is to become what Adam and Eve originally were. Immortal, glorified imagers of God, living in God's presence as his children. And so here's what Paul wants to do in the rest of this text. He wants to unpack what are the internal dynamics that happen in a life when we start to get and understand we're adopted as kids, as children of God. What, what starts to get healed? What starts to get redeemed? What starts to get reworked in our mind? And listen to what he says in verse 6. He says this. And because you are sons, so he's riffing off of this idea of being adopted. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is this Aramaic word that they intentionally left untranslated. Okay? Because we could translate it, and we could translate it, Daddy, or we could translate it, Papa, we could translate it father, but it would lose something. 
It, it had such a nuanced, beautiful picture in the Aramaic that they just decided to keep it. It means father, but in a colloquial and like an intimate sense. And that's what's being invited. That's what's being redeemed at Christmas. That what's lost in the garden is being redeemed in the manger. That we get to interact with God in intimacy rather than formality. Like, we don't need to get all pretty to go and see God. We, we, we might want to get all pretty to come to church, but just know you don't need to dress up to interact with God. You can go exactly as you are, broken, in need of healing, messed up a little bit, and you don't need to get all formal when you interact with God. Some of the best prayers we pray are just off the cuff. God, I'm angry. God, where are you? God, this feels messed up. The, the bells, the Christmas bells are ringing. But God's asleep. God, you're asleep. Those are, I think those are some of the most powerful prayers. And you don't need to get formal when you come to God. Abba, Abba is the invitation to intimacy. It's the invitation to really to two things. To know that you have God's affection. And it covers your life. And it covers your life. There's this really interesting show that they filmed a number of years ago. It's entitled Finding My Father. But the tagline of the show, it's, it's people that have been disconnected from their biological fathers. The tagline of the show read like this. By finding my father, I'm finding myself. And I heard that and went, well, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what God is doing. That you, you, you become who you were designed to be as you're covered in and showered by the love that he wants to cover you with. So I just want to take a second and do a timeout, okay? Last week, there was um, a prayer request that came in, and it was from Anonymous. And um, they, th this person said, I'm having such a hard time. Um, I, I don't see any reason to keep living. And I'm, I'm contemplating suicide. And as I was praying through over that this week, I just want you to know if you're here today and you came back, one, thank you for writing that down, putting it on paper, getting it into the light. I want you to know I've been praying for you every single day. But secondly, secondly, I think one of the lies the enemy loves to seed into our brain is that we don't matter, that God doesn't care, that he doesn't hear. And I hope that into your situation, if you're here today, that you just sense a God who says, no, I, I love you so much. I've come that you might become my child because I love you exactly the way that you are. Broken, you don't need to clean up to come home. Exactly the way that you are. I'd love to pray with you after if you're here. We have affection, but we also have access that God says anytime, anytime, any place. Um, I study on Mondays, and I have this um, little magnet I put up over the window in my office on Mondays when I'm writing my sermons. And really what it means for all my staff is I love you, I care about you um, Tuesday through Friday. And don't bother me today unless the building's on fire. I want to know then. 
but right, like, it's, it's sort of my way of saying I'm, I'm just trying to meet with God so I have something of substance and meaning to deliver to all you guys on Sundays. And they love that. They respect that. Um, when my son used to go to our, our early learning center, our preschool, on Mondays, they would come by my window and he would pound on my window, my four-year-old, right? Daddy! Daddy! And what I do? I said, I'm studying today. I'll see you. No, I didn't. No, I was like, come on in. Anytime. I want to see you. You're welcome here. You know, God's never too busy to meet with you. And what Christmas tells us is there is actually no distance between us and God. (laughs) Because he's bridged that gap. I love the way that Eugene Peterson put it. He said, faith is not a formal relationship hedged with elaborate courtesies. (laughs) It is a family relationship, intimate and free. Oh, yeah. What's the second thing that's rewired in us? Well, look how this passage continues. Here's what Paul writes. So, so, So in light of this fact that you call him Abba, and the Spirit cries out, Abba, You are no longer a slave, but a son. You're no longer a a slave, but you're a son or daughter. You're part of the family. Isn't it interesting? If you were to look at a slave working in the first century, which was really more like a, a household servant, somebody who worked on the property, lived on the property, interacted with the family, it wasn't, don't think sort of civil rights slavery in the U.S. It's very different. Think more like indentured servant type of relationship where they were often really a part of the family. If you were to look at somebody in the first century who was a slave and somebody who was a son, they would have done very similar activities for very different reasons. And it's what Paul's pointing out here, that at Christmas, becoming a child of God, here's what it is. It's a movement from being duty-based to desire-based. When we partner with God, and you do know you don't work for God, right? You're invited to work with God. Those are two very different things. We're working on the family business, when we link arms with God, when we say, God, our, our prayer is that your will would be, that your, your, your kingdom would come and your will would be done here in Littleton and Centennial as it is in heaven, when we, when we give to things like the food bank, when we sign up to serve in the Christmas market, when we link arms with North Littleton Promise and their Posada, here, we're working on the family business. We're not working for God, we're working with God. As your kingdom comes, God, that's, that's the kingdom I want too. I'm not swimming against the stream of what I ultimately long for. I am building into the desires that are deepest within my soul. God, you move and God, you work. I'm not working for acceptance. I'm working from acceptance. I'm not working for love. I'm working from love. So Paul claims that we're not hirelings. We're children. And here's the way that he puts it. If, if you're a son or daughter, then you're an heir or an heiress. <laughs> that you're, you're part of the family. And slaves, they lived with this like predictable vision of what the future would become. They, they lived with limitations. But an heir 
An error, an error lives with ever-expanding possibilities. Who knows what could happen? Who knows what could happen? And see, here, here's what we get to do. As God became a child that we might become children of God, we get to choose to be futuristic rather than fatalistic. Some of the strangest, most mind-bending passages in the entire Bible are when it talks about your future and mine. Um, not just in heaven and not just resurrection, but did you know that it says in the scriptures that you will judge angels? Like, what in the world is that? I don't know. Dan said he'd preach on that though, so awesome, great. <laughs> did you know that it says that, that Jesus will inherit his kingdom and then he'll, he'll hand it over to us? That like, Just like Adam and Eve in the garden are given a job to cultivate and grow the garden, he will give us that same role once again. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, look it up. It'll blow up your mind because we're heirs. Adoption changes everything. I don't know if you had the chance to pick up one of our um, Advent devotionals. They're in the lobby again uh, today, but I want to read you one of the devos. It's by um, Rachel Cookston, and we asked her to write on this because she was adopted. But I just want you to think about a change in trajectory. Here's what she wrote. My story of adoption, she said, starts in Calcutta, India. My birth mother had me when she was around 14, and I don't know much about her background, but I know I was found in the streets of Calcutta by one of Mother Teresa's nuns. Growing up, I hated being adopted. I hated being the only non-white person in my family. I was desperate to fit in. I developed an anguish in my soul towards the India I hated so much and didn't want to be recognized as different, just as American. My family, of course, loved me and told me I was chosen, but there was still an empty place inside of my heart that made me feel unknown. And it wasn't until college when God revealed his beautiful love and grace to me in an unexpected way. I was asked to go on a mission trip to India for four months. I immediately said no, but after a lot of prayer, I decided to step into an adventure that would forever change my view of adoption. One day, as I was walking along in a small Indian village, a man came up to me begging me to take his beautiful, bright-eyed, black-haired baby girl. I looked into her eyes, and I finally understood what it means to be adopted. I saw this little one desperate to be loved and taken into a loving family. She was so innocent and unable to speak for herself. This experience broke my heart because I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't take her, but I knew in that moment how God had saved me, how he saw me, and how he chose me to be a part of his family. In that moment, I realized just how much God loves me and cared for me. God knew my story, and he had a plan for my life. Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. Yeah, yeah. So what does it mean to become children of God? It means intimacy, not formality. It means desire, not duty. It means futuristic, not fatalistic. And you may be going, mm, yeah, Paulson, like that's really, really good. But still doesn't make everything look like Norman Rockwell. 
Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that great? Yeah, 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 rah, rah, rah. Family's still coming. And it's still broken. And it's still not what we're praying for. And it's still not what we're hoping for. It's really interesting. If you follow this passage down to verse 19, if you have your own Bible, like just go track there with me. Here's what Paul writes. Here's what he says. He's talking about how much he loves this church. And he says, my little children for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. If I could summarize what he's saying, is he's saying this. He's saying that you and I, you and I are born children of God so that we're formed into the image of Christ. We are born as children of God so that we're formed into the image of Jesus. See, adoption is ultimately, all those things that we said, intimacy and desire and future, all of those things are ultimately for our formation, that we might become different kinds of people. And see, Jesus knows the the messiness of family. He knows that family is broken. He was born into a very real, very human family. Have you ever wondered why Joseph isn't present at the cross? He's, he's probably passed away. We don't know for sure, but who, I mean, Jesus experienced all those losses and all those pains and being restored into God's family. Catch this. Being restored into God's family lays the foundation for the restoration of our families doesn't mean that it's going to happen automatically, and it doesn't mean that it's going to happen perfectly, but it lays the foundation for it. In fact, in one of these Advent passages that I never knew was an Advent passage until I started to pray through the daily office, and out popped Saturday, yesterday, Malachi chapter 4, which happens to be an Advent text. Read it. It's six verses, the entire chapter. But at the beginning of chapter 4, Malachi is talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, when when God will make all things right and all things new. And then he says something that's just weird and shocking, and it doesn't make any sense on the surface, unless, unless, unless we recognize the prevailing base note that echoes from the garden. Here's what he says. Whoops. He says, behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, now when John the Baptist steps onto the scene, he's, he's the Elijah. <laughs> and he will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So wait, 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 wait. The, the, when Jesus comes and, and the restoration that Jesus brings, Malachi goes, okay, okay so here's what's going to happen. Hearts of parents are going to go out to their kids. And hearts of their kids are going to return to their parents. I love the way that my theological crush put it. <laughs> Fleming Rutledge, here's what she said. She said, just as Malachi reaches the climax of this extraordinary universal prophecy, 
Suddenly, he narrows the focus to the most homely, most personal, most intimate circle we could possibly imagine. The destiny of the universe is found in the destiny of families. Fleming for the win. The destiny of the universe is found in the destiny of families. And so you're going, okay, well, Paulson, it still doesn't make everything right. It still doesn't restore everything. And I want to say to you, I get that. I see that. I hear you. I know that. But becoming or grasping the fact that we are a child of God infuses our life, empowers our life with grace to live in his way, with his heart, not just on Sunday mornings, but in our workplaces and in our families. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, it's really interesting. In John chapter 1, John records about his friend Jesus that he came. He came to his own, even though his own didn't receive him. Let me ask you, was that a surprise to Jesus? No. No, it wasn't. But he, but he, still, he still pursued. What, is, what does it look like to live in our families, in our communities, in our apartment complexes, with our friends? What does it look like to live as children of God? Well, it looks like pursuit. It may be one person that you send a text message to this Christmas. It, it may be that person that you're estranged from in your family and you reach out and you invite them over. And I know it's like stepping out onto a frozen lake. You're not sure if it's going to crack or if it's going to hold. And it's risk, and it's memories, and it's pain. And Jesus says, I give you the grace to step into that. Sacrifice. What does it look like to live in his heart? Um, I, I, I almost use the word love, but love can feel cuddly and love can feel emotive. And what love means when we talk about agape love in the scriptures is not a feeling, it's a decision. It's a choice of the will to say, I will sacrifice for the betterment of that other person. And maybe it's even a person that's wronged me. So I will sacrifice. One, one great question you could ask yourself this week, and maybe you ask yourself during your fixed hour prayer, if you're joining us in that at nine, at noon, at three. And it's not a time to specifically pray for anything, but to open ourselves up to God, to say, God, you're, you're here and so am I. But maybe you ask this question, God, what does love demand of me today? What does love ask of me? What does love require of me? And if the answer is nothing, maybe it's not love. Maybe it's not love. And finally, we forgive. What if the few hundred people in this room today, what if we decided, man, as, as people who are born of God, adopted into his family, we want to become the kind of people who live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, as, as John echoes for all of creation to hear, behold, behold, the Lamb of God, pointing at Jesus, who takes away the sin of some of the world. 
sin of the world. See, forgiveness takes one. God's forgiveness is over you. Reconciliation takes two. And that's the invitation that Jesus holds out for you and me. What if this Christmas, what if this Christmas, we pursued people differently? This is filling up Christmas, you guys. We pursued people differently. We loved in a way that cost something. And we held out the hope, we held out the offer of forgiveness because we have been forgiven. It may not make it into the Rockwellian Christmas we all hope for. But look up at me, look up at me. It would change your Christmas. It'll change your Christmas. I want to close in a little bit of a different way. Um, I just want to lead us in a, in a practice of asking God how, what he wants to do with this. So you can put your stuff away. You can put your stuff away. And I'm going to have some music to place. And I just want to lead you to a place where maybe you hear God's voice a little bit differently and are able to respond to it. Does that sound okay? Sound okay? All right, just close your eyes and I'm going to put on some music. Oh, you already did. Sorry, that's my bad. Thank you. You're way ahead of me. Oh, Jesus, in the busyness of this Christmas Advent season, we just want to pause and remember that you're in the midst of it all. We want to remember that we're children of God, that you've called us your own. Take a moment and just remember those things. You have access, you have affection, you have intimacy from God Almighty. If there's an issue going on in your family or in relationships, if there's a fracture, I just want to invite you right now to just bring that before God. Not out loud, but just bring it before Him. What have, what have those people done to you? Name it. Listen. What do, you, what do you sense Jesus saying to you? My guess is it's not just them that's wronged you. My guess is that there's some people that you've, you've wronged also. Maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, but do you bring that before God? Name those things. My guess is if you're, if you're not perfect, there's some things you could name. What do you sense Jesus saying to you? 
maybe go back to that person that you had in your mind, the person that maybe has wronged you, and would you just pray for blessing on their life? Jesus commands us to be people that love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I've met a lot of people that agree with that and a few people that do it. Would you just pray blessing over them? then would you open your heart to receive the blessing that I believe that God is pouring into your life and into mine to receive it he's risen with healing in his wings light and life to all he brings hail the son of righteousness hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Jesus, today, this morning, we open ourselves up to you and we ask that you would pour out your healing where we, you know we need it, God. That where you're calling us to be a healing balm, to live in your way with your heart in a way that would impact our families. In fact, if you sense that that's you, would you just raise your hand for me? I just want to know who I'm praying for today. If you're going, yeah, Jesus has a, something for me to do this holiday season, this Christmas season in my family. There's, there's just something off. I just want to pray for you. Raise your hand. Okay, gotcha. See you. Yeah. So Jesus, for all these hands raised and people who want to to step into pain and brokenness with light and hope and love. And maybe where there's disagreements to step in with forgiveness, Jesus. I, I pray that your spirit would move and work in their life, that they may truly be sons and daughters of God in their families during this holiday Christmas season. So Jesus, we trust you became a child that we might become children of God and we have become children of God that we might be formed into your image. May it be true of us. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said.